We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good morning. Today is Tuesday, February 21st, and it is primary election day in Wisconsin. Uh, my name is Scott Shera. I'm Grace's dad. And one of the reasons God allowed Grace's premature death was to save others and wake others up. I was not awake before her death, but now I have become a full-time advocate as a result. This program is called Deprogramming with Grace's Dad because this is the single most shocking thing I learned about myself, which is how programmed I was and still am. I'm going to spend the rest of my life deprogramming myself. If there was ever a guest who needs no introduction, it's Del Bigtree. Can you bring Del on, please, Don? Good morning, Scott, Del. How you doing? Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. Right. I met Dell a year ago in Wisconsin Dells, and he invited me on the high wire to share Grace's story. And people think, well, that's a big deal to be on the high wire, and it is a big deal. But there's even a bigger deal, which is the high wire is only one of two organizations, the other one, the Epic Times, that vetted our story. So that's what made it impressive to me. Dell's team sent a, a person to interview us, uh, so it was super professional. Of course, that was everybody expects that out of the high wire, but the vetting process was the thing I was most impressed with, and I want to compliment Dell for that. Uh, Dell is the world's preeminent voice in the vaccine risk awareness movement. He's the founder of the nonprofit Informed Consent Action Network, which we're going to hear a little bit about as we, we talk, and the host of the breakout internet talk show, The Highwire, the fastest growing program in the natural health arena with over 100 million views. So like last week, I always introduce something relative to Grace before... I start talking with the guest, and because we had such a neat interview on the high wire, I'm going to have Don play uh, a little over a two-minute clip from the from the high wire interview. So go ahead, Don. When we think about this pandemic, so much of our discussions have been about the the failure of the vaccine. We've also talked about the denial of life-saving drugs, including hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and, and other things, and of course, intravenous vitamin C and all of these other things that people have used, and we've discussed it. We've, we've talked about the sort of the mandated ventilators and the remdesivir, and especially the fact that, rem, you know, the ventilators were killing nine out of 10 people throughout this pandemic. And, you know, Dr. Kyle Seidel, I'm just reflecting way back to a show we did, this ER doctor came out and said, this cannot be right. He was in New York working in all night shifts saying, we are just killing people with these ventilators. Well, what happens when you have some of that information and you're out there in the middle of the pandemic? So many of you were calling the show saying, I don't know what to do. They will not let me near my loved one. We were going to, I'm trying to get them ivermectin or I'm trying to get them hydroxychloroquine or I'm trying to make sure that they don't vent them. And the hospitals were like these prisons that they had taken your family member in and you were denied access. And so many of our parents were lost and grandparents throughout COVID um, when we weren't even able, be, we weren't even allowed to be standing by their side when it took place. 
Well, this next story is a story like that, and it needs to go into the annals of time, into the time capsule that reminds us how messed up this experience was. How many doctors and nurses were anything but heroic, but actually helped divide families, to bring harm, to not protect? This is one of those stories. Grace was um, phenomenal. She loved everyone and she loved everything. She was my best buddy. Uh, she went hunting with me. We got her a red convertible when she turned 18. Yeah, it was just a joy. We'd get out on the highway and she would say, let her rip dad. <laughs> and so we, we would. We found out that uh, we were blessed with Grace having Down syndrome when she was born. Down syndrome is actually um, the presence of a third um, 21st chromosome, which she called her love chromosome, because everybody that knows a child with Down syndrome, they just love unconditionally. Down syndrome did not stop Grace whatsoever. There wasn't a thing she, she didn't do. She rode horse, she played violin. Uh, my wife, who's gifted in teaching, taught her how to read and write. The things that Grace taught me um, were really above and beyond whatever I taught her. I say thank you, thank you very much. Oh boy, that, that is such a hard uh, piece for me to watch. I just, uh, I enjoy it, but it's a tearjerker at the same time. And so, you know, I'm still doing this and I'm full time doing it because these hospital murders which took out grace are still happening today. The public health emergency was re-upped on January 11th, just, just a month ago. Uh, and I wanna show you numbers so you people can get a grasp as to how you can you can see what's literally happened today. So the murders are still happening. Don, can you just bring up the, the graph? So if you if you find this, this, this link will be on, in the show notes, but you'll see every day you can see the hospital murders. On February 16th, there, were the, there was 1,071 murders. On February 17th, there was 709. And each day, if you just follow the timeline, you'll see how many people are still being murdered under the guise of a public health emergency. So today we're, we're not gonna spend time on hospital murders other than the fact that hospital murders really set up the jab because the title today is the Vaccine Bioweapon Update and Predictive Programming. So let's, let's get rolling. I've got a lot of clips today because a friend of mine called me last week and he said, Scott, I've been trying to convince my mom of what you're, what you're sharing. He's been watching the, the deprogramming and she won't believe it unless it's on TV. So she only watches the alphabet networks. And so I thought, you know what, I want to get as many clips as possible, because if we can get one person, and I'm specifically targeting her today, because if we can get one person with each show, it's one more person awake that that isn't going to die a premature death. So uh, we're going to talk briefly about um, predictive programming right now, because I want to introduce it with a clip that is uh, uh, eerily um, predictive of what we have been going through, but then we're going to close with predictive programming because I want to get Dell's perspective of 2023 and ongoing. So, uh, Don, can you play the Simpsons clip right now? America's media empires, we're here to come up with the next phony baloney crisis to put Americans back where they belong in dark rooms glued to their televisions too terrified to escape the commercials. Well, I think... NBC, you are here to listen and not speak. 
I think we should go with a good old-fashioned public health care. Uh, yeah. A new disease. No one's immune. It's like the summer of the shark, except instead of a shark, it's an epidemic. And instead of summer, it's all the time. That is okay. Now, I hate to be the guy who derails what everybody else loves. He loves being that guy. But, Janice, we do have standards. This can't be a made-up disease. The only moral thing to do is release a deadly virus into the general public. We do have something we've been holding on to, but it hasn't been tested. Get over here, NBC. Uh, well, well, we certainly believe in testing, but I... Oh, oh. Wow. Wow. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. So, we've got our deadly disease. We have to burn everything the cat touched before the virus makes us paranoid! Homer! Stop burning! They have a vaccine! All right, we'll get the vaccine. Don't worry, people. So this was from 2010. Uh, Dell, I'd like you to comment about how they set us up for this pandemic. Well, I mean, you know, I guess the debate, the only debate that sort of remains is how much of this was planned. Is the is the release of the virus part of the thing, or were they just opportunist using a situation that's something that and and you you've watched my show i really don't jump to conclusions i can't prove so what we you know what i would say is um what we know about this virus now is that and it had a death rate of about you know somewhere around 0.35 percent somewhere between 0.27 percent Mm-hmm. I've been arguing, and we knew that. We knew that about within about three months of this thing getting off and running. And so the question I kept asking, and no one in media would ask, which is, at what point do we back off? What warrants locking us down? What warrants forcing us to wear masks? What warrants taking my job away? What warrants turning hospitals into prisons where I can't spend time uh, with my loved ones? Uh, we should have set some sort of bar with this, but we didn't. Instead, now it's just like, well, whatever, whatever the CDC says, whatever the WHO says. And so that's the beginning of the programming. The fact that we're not demanding real, you know, um, evaluation and understanding, you know, we're we're setting milestones. Where are they? I mean, we wouldn't run any other business like this in the world. You would want answers. You want to know, you know, what steps we take and and at what point is the emergency over? What death rate does it drop down to? So when you look at the death rate now, it is clearly um, at best a bad flu season. Uh, We haven't locked down for flus that were as bad as this uh, over the millennia. Um, and so then you got to start asking yourself why. And, and, and one of the things that I have been talking about before COVID was be- I had been on an investigation of the vaccine program ever since I got involved with the documentary Vaxxed. Prior to that, I was a CBS producer on the daytime talks of the doctors. So I sort of jumped away from that to make this documentary because I thought it was so incredibly important and compelling that we had a whistleblower inside the CDC saying they were committing scientific fraud in the vaccine safety studies. But to get back to the point of COVID, 
I was predicting to audiences that there was going to be a pandemic somewhere in the near future. And what I was saying that was based on a speculation caused by the fact that the pharmaceutical lobby is and has been for quite some time now the most powerful lobby in Washington. It's outspending oil and gas two to one. So we fight wars in the Middle East, I would say to audiences, uh, in order to pay back whatever funding they're buying our politicians, buying in the lobby that that gas lobby we we fight wars for i would say what do you think they're buying with twice that amount of money going into our politics with pharma i said they're buying you they want a forced vaccination program for every human being on this planet that will take a multi-trillion dollar industry i mean multi-billion dollar industry and turn into a multi-trillion dollar industry overnight and so that's what i believe the agenda was so as soon as covid hit we started seeing this thing go That was what was clear to me. And then there was things that proved my sort of hypothesis, if you will, which is as soon as this virus breaks out, we are told that there is no drug on this earth that is ever going to be able to stop it. The only way we're going to stop it is some untested, totally experimental vaccine. So that says, well, how do you know of all the compounds on the planet and many have cured other diseases or even protected against other diseases? How did everyone in the world know that none of those were going to work? Only some failed vaccine, which it was a failure for 20 years. They were attempting to make a a vaccine for covid uh, for coronaviruses and, and it failed in animal trials for 20 straight years. So why all of a sudden would they be able to pull it off and why would it be the only thing that worked? And then one of the things I pointed out. Um, and have pointed out multiple times is you need a motive, right? You need to show, you know, what was happening, what made them, what I think ultimately break the law, and as, 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 as you're stating, uh, begin to murder people. And that really comes down to, to me, the denial of drugs that did prove to be very effective. Hydroxychloroquine studies all around the world show that it reduced the death rate by about 50% if given um, upon, um, you, know, symptomat- you know, as soon as you were symptomatic. And those were studies all around the world. And by the way, it wasn't the first studies ever done when Tony Fauci said he didn't trust the product. It was ironic because hydroxychloroquine had been in studies in early 2000s when we were first looking at the original SARS coronavirus that scared us a lot. They saw that that drug, they, the NIH reported this drug is not only good at stopping the disease, it's good at preventing the disease. So it did both. So the fact that our government was like, we don't know if this would work at all, was really um, disingenuous. And then along came ivermectin, even more successful than hydroxychloroquine, about 75 to 80 percent reduction in death. And then that was denied to people. We literally had our government saying we're not going to support this and basically, you know, making it so that all pharmacists were afraid to use it. Doctors were afraid to use it. Hospitals were mandating against it. And that begins, I think, the, the murder of innocent people. We're over a million people that are dead now in America. At the very least, if all we ever had was hydroxychloroquine, I believe that would have been around 500 if we were using ivermectin, then we would have probably only had about 250,000 deaths. And if we'd have done what we now really know, which is you couldn't die. Studies show that you could not die from COVID if your vitamin D levels were at a certain level, um, 50, uh, 50, I forget how many parts per million in the bloodstream. But there was a specific number where vitamin D clearly showed that you could not get a very deadly form of this if you had high vitamin D levels. Where would we be? had all of that science been presented to the people. So that's where this starts. And all of it, why? Why were they denying those drugs? Because in order to release the vaccine early, which proves the point that this was always about 
an agenda. They want to release the vaccine early to make it all about the vaccine. The emergency use authorization presented by the FDA states unequivocally, there can be no other product that is capable of uh, reducing death and infection or used as a preventive. There can be no other available product that works in order to be allowed to put an experimental product out into the population. That's exactly what they did. They put an experimental product out. They told us there was no other viable options because they killed those options and made it essentially illegal to use them. Uh, this will go down in history as one of, I think, the most horrific moments in science, in medicine, and I stand by it. Um, I do not see the medical establishment as heroes throughout this COVID experience. I think um, when we look back at this, this th- these doctors will go on the level of those in Nazi Germany, following orders that made absolutely no sense, were only resulting in unexplained high levels of death. Uh, I could go on and on. How many doctors are, you know, confused why their patients are dying of kidney failure when COVID doesn't cause kidney failure? Remdesivir's side effect is kidney failure. And we heard that, you know, all of these people on dialysis all across the country that went in with COVID, never had a kidney issue. You're giving a drug that causes kidney failure. What does that result in? It results in your lungs filling with water. And then we call it pneumonia. This whole thing, uh, when it all gets dissected out, I do believe history will tell this correctly because of people like you uh, that really have gone the extra mile to say, I'm not going to just walk away from the horrific situation I've been involved in. I'm bringing a lawsuit. We, as you know, are very litigious in this space. And I think we have a lot of politicians now that are waking up to what happened. And there's some really good questions being asked on Capitol Hill now. Well, I certainly agree with that. The questions are at least being asked. We're going to yeah. drill down the ivermectin um, squashing and how they got the EUA approved here in a minute. But I want to ask the question first um, about amnesty, because you are one of the few that jumped on this correctly right right out of the gate. So, Don, can you just bring up that that screenshot? All right. So you see what if you scroll down you'll see that the then and now. So you can see what the claims were. Uh, you know, they were saying this thing is the silver bullet, and then all of a sudden they want to declare amnesty. So right. uh, what I want to hear from you, Dell, is in your own words, why can there never be amnesty with this situation? Well, there certainly can't be amnesty until, you know, I have here uh, repent. I mean, you know, everyone's like, give us forgiveness. You know, well, then you're going to have to repent first. If we're going to look at this, what exactly am I giving you amnesty for? I'm not convinced that you've admitted what you did wrong. I'm not convinced that the learning has happened so that this will never happen again. I've never heard anyone admit the mistakes that were made uh, and how things should have been done differently. So we're nowhere near. I'm not saying I will never believe in amnesty. We will decide about that in the future. But before we get anywhere near a discussion about amnesty, amnesty, we're going to have to hear all of these hospitals, all these doctors, the regulatory agencies, the United States of America, and those of the world, including the WHO and every health department around the world. When they get down on their knees and apologize for the wrongdoing, explain exactly what they did wrong and how they now see it as wrong, then let's decide whether or not amnesty is required or if some of these people need to go to jail. But we're nowhere near that point. We are still living in a space of denial. The fact 
fact that the CHD is still promoting this vaccine to children when all it appears to do is cause myocarditis, pericarditis, thrombocytopenia, blood clots, uh, strokes. That's all it's going to do for kids who literally have a risk of death with the virus itself of about 0.0003%. Okay, so they have a 0% risk from the virus and a much, much higher risk taking this vaccine. While the CHD continues to kill and destroy innocent children's lives, trust me, we are not going to have any conversation about amnesty. And by the way, when all this knowledge was known as it is now, and the CHD and the F, I mean, um, uh, yeah, when um, the CDC and the FDA, uh, the National Institute of Health, all of those scientists, as they keep pushing this with all the knowledge we have now, I don't believe there will ever be amnesty. You can only imagine amnesty if we didn't know better. They right. know better now. Now it is wrongful death and these people need to go to prison. Fantastic. You know, when I saw the Brooke Jackson case, that is the thing that really put me over the top with this because, you know, she brought the the uh, the whistleblower came claim with a false claims act against Pfizer and they produce an other transaction authority contract saying they didn't even have a contract to produce a, a vaccine. They were producing a prototype that didn't require testing. And by the way, that case is coming up for the judge to decide if it's going to be go to discovery or dismissal in yeah. Texas on on March 1st, just a, a little over a week from now. Uh, yeah. What I'd like to have you do next, Dell, before we drill down the ivermectin and you know how they they squashed ivermectin with the EUA is I heard you speak at an event that really uh, it was powerful, and you were describing the meeting that you had with Fauci and RFK Jr. So can you tell the audience about that meeting? Yeah, we um, when Donald Trump was elected, uh, some people remember there was this little flash of light for a moment there. Donald Trump had stated publicly uh, when he was on the campaign trail for his uh, first for the first election that he believed that vaccines caused autism. He talked about it looking like a horse shot. He talked about someone in his office that had a child that got the vaccine and then regressed into autism. And so because of that, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. really pressed and, and got a meeting with Donald Trump. And, and Donald Trump came out and said, I'm going to make Bobby Kennedy or Robert Kennedy Jr. the head of a vaccine safety commission. Um, and then that never really happened. It didn't. I think all of those around Donald Trump uh, didn't like the idea. But what came out of it was we did at least get a meeting. Donald Trump set up a meeting at the National Institutes of Health and asked that Robert Kennedy Jr. bring all the problems with the vaccine program to those that were in charge of it. Um, uh, Robert Kennedy reached out to me uh, because we had done extensive work looking at that. And together we came up with a PowerPoint one and presented it at the National Institutes of Health. And let me just it, the meeting was two or three hours long, but I'll get to the basic uh, the two biggest points in it. Number one, we said in by the way, it was Tony Fauci was sitting right across from me. Francis Collins, head of NIH, was right across from Bobby, was sitting to my left. And then a whole host of the other leaders of our virology, immunology departments or government departments. And what we said is we can't 
find a single double-blind placebo-based safety trial of any of the 16 vaccines that are given in 72 doses to our children in the United States of America. There's only one way to determine safety for a pharmaceutical product, and that is this placebo-based study. One group gets the drug or the vaccine in this case, and the other group gets either a sugar pill if it's a pill or a saline injection. We track the health for multiple years and see is the vaccinated group just as healthy as the unvaccinated ask certain questions like who has more ADHD who has more diabetes who has more asthma or multiple sclerosis or autism all of these things that are on an incredible rise that makes no sense amongst our children uh, in America so we said to this group are you not doing proper safety trials using placebos or are they just not being published where the public can see it? Now, some scientists at the end of the table chimed in. Of course, we're doing placebo studies. It's the gold standard of safety. We're just their earlier phase one and two phase study uh, phase trials that don't uh, get handed to the public. And Bobby rightly said, great. Uh, we're at the National Institutes of Health. The archives are here. This is why we're here. This is why Donald Trump has uh, brought us together. And so please go get those documents and bring them here. Show us your randomized control trials using a placebo for the childhood vaccines prior to licensing. And there was silence. I mean, it was one of the longest pregnant pauses I've ever heard. And finally, Tony Fauci chimed in and said, we don't do placebo studies because it would be unethical. And this ultimately ends up being their argument. If you're confused by that, it really shows you that this is more of a religious belief than some scientific endeavor. They believe vaccines are so great uh, prior to licensing, even a brand new concept like the Gardasil HPV vaccine it was going to be the first vaccine to ever attempt to stop cancer. But they think it's so great before we even test it to see if it's safe or efficacious that to deny a placebo group access to this life-saving experimental product would be unethical. Therefore, they don't do placebo studies. And therefore, they've never established safety of any of the childhood vaccines we give our kids. There was one other question then, because they said it would be unethical to do what's called a prospective study, which means you're going to deny a group of children or, or adults this life-saving product in order to do scientific research. And we said, well, hold on a second then. What about a retrospective study that looks back at decisions that were already made? There'd be no ethical problem with that. You are sitting at the CDC on a database called the VSD, Vaccine Safety Data Link. It has over 10 million people in it. Tens of thousands of them are completely unvaccinated. Why don't you just do, you know, a basic query into the computer system? Remember, we're the home of IBM. We're the home of Microsoft and Apple. Sure, certainly we have computer learning and we could ask that database certain questions like how about take the vaccinated and compare them to the unvaccinated and ask all the questions we're curious about. Who has more autism? Who has more ADD, ADHD? Who has more asthma and anaphylaxis? and lupus and multiple sclerosis. Just go through the whole list. And if the vaccinated come out of that study showing that they're healthier and, and have less of those diseases, then game over. This conversation is over. And you know what they said to us? We will never do that study. I don't know what else to tell you. That's what they said. We will never do the most obvious study known to man. Remember, 
This one study would shut me up forever. It would shut Robert Kennedy Jr. up forever. We would, you know, what argument would we have? They, CDC has proved that the vaccinated are healthier than the unvaccinated through a basic comparative study. I assure you they have done that study every way sideways and cannot figure out a way to make it look like the vaccinated are healthier or you would have seen it by now. Trust me, we would have seen it. That's Del, you knocked that out of the park. That's exactly what I was hoping for, because that when I heard you say that the first time, I thought, my gosh, this if everybody in the world knew this, yeah. uh, we could stop this this insanity of people just lining up for for the jab. So my my perspective of of this EUA, which that's what I want to drill down next. So so let's I want to go all the way back. January 31st of 2020, that's when the Health and Human Services Secretary uh, issued the first public health emergency. Uh, four days later, on February 4th, he enlisted the PREP Act, which gave immunity from liability. And with those two things in place, now the FDA could issue emergency use authorizations. They immediately implemented an EUA for ventilators, and then they went for remdesivir next. My belief is that they wanted these things in place because they already knew how many people were going to die. And if you remember back at that time, I mean, they were publishing the deaths daily on TV, just constant, constant to create the fear so that people would line up for the jab. So this first clip, what I want to play is, is Dr. Pierre Corey explaining the effectiveness of ivermectin. This is early on. You'll see the date stamp right yeah. in the clip. And then when we're done listening to this, Dell, I'm going to have you introduce uh, the interview you had with right. Tess Laurie. So Don, go ahead and play Pierre Corey's clip. We have evidence that ivermectin is effective, not only in prophylaxis, in the prevention. If you take it, you will not get sick. We just came across a trial last night from Argentina by the lead investigator of ivermectin in Argentina, Dr. Hector Carvalho. They prophylaxed 800 healthcare workers. Not one got sick. In the 400 that they didn't prophylax with ivermectin, 58% got sick. 237 of those 400 got sick. If you take it, you will not get sick. It has immense and potent antiviral activity. We know that from the first study in Monash, it has made the bench to the bedside. Prophylaxis, we now have four large randomized controlled trials totaling over 1,500 patients, each trial showing that as a prophylaxis agent, it is immensely effective. You will not get sick. You will be protected from getting ill if you take it. <clears throat> In early outpatient treatment, we have three randomized control trials and multiple observation as well as case series showing that if you take ivermectin, the need for hospitalization and death will decrease. The most profound evidence we have is in the hospitalized patients. We have four randomized control trials there, multiple observation trials, all showing the same thing. You will not die or you will die at much, much, much lower rates. Statistically significant, large magnitude results if you take ivermectin. It is proving to be a wonder drug. It has already won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2015 for its impacts on global health in the eradication of parasitic diseases. It is proving to be an immensely powerful antiviral and anti-inflammatory agent. It is critical for its use in this disease. 
what was incredible about what I, I want to do yeah, next? What say, what was, what's go, go ahead, about of ivermectin? It has a multi-prong attack on this virus. Not only does it kill the virus, right. it also reduces inflammation. So all of the lung issues and the breathing issues were reduced. I mean, this thing was amazing, um, and and it is by far, I, as, as my understanding of it. Arguably the, the safest medicine on the planet. It has no pharmacokinetics. It doesn't actually interact with other drugs. So you don't have to worry about other drugs people are taking. That's miraculous. And when you think about how many studies he just listed, you mentioned remdesivir for a second. Remdesivir goes through one really questionable trial uh, in which they didn't really prove anything. But remdesivir had failed. Remdesivir was an Ebola drug. I want to get this clear. Remdesivir that did get approved is a, an Ebola drug that was so toxic that in the trials they stopped using it, deciding better, you were better off dealing with Ebola without it. That's how toxic it was. It was shutting down people's kidneys and they said, screw it, you're better off with Ebola, you'll have a better chance than with remdesivir. So remdesivir goes through, but ivermectin does not when it is showing randomized control trials. These trials were so amazing. In fact, some of them that were on hospital uh, uh, care workers, nurses and doctors, they, they had one group taking it, one group not. They had so many deaths in the group that was not taking it, and none in the one that was. They canceled the trial and said it's unethical to go any further. It is so clear ivermectin is saving lives, and having this control group that, like we talked about before, would be unethical because that control group is dying because they're not getting this drug. That's how amazing it was. And so, what I always say when I tell this story, you know, Pierre Corey sits before a Senate. He brings that information to us. And does the Senate move on it? Not really. This great um, scientist, Tess Laurie, out of uh, England, she has her own nonprofit. She works for the WHO all the time. The WHO brings her team in as a specialist to analyze trials and studies that are going to be done by the WHO to make sure that they're ethical, that they're going to be effective, and that they'll be able to get, you you know, the information they need from the process. She also looks at trials that have already been done to see if they were ethically done or if there's any flaw in the way that they crunch their data. So she's a master at understanding how trials work. She reaches out to Pierre Corey right after that, that Senate hearing and says, Pierre, I'm very excited about what you just said with ivermectin. I am really good at, at bringing together, commingling all the studies from around the world and doing a meta-analysis in a Cochrane-style review. This is what she said, Cochrane being the Cochrane collaboration, which is the greatest independent body of scientists that really challenges science without a bias and is one of the ones that came forward and let us know that many of the trials being done that are being published in uh, medical journals cannot be recreated, therefore they're not effective. Cochrane's always been there. She said, let's do that type of review. And then she says, and you know what we should do? We should bring in a WHO scientist so that when we prove, if ivermectin proves to be as great as you said, having a WHO scientist will help us move this entire needle faster. WHO then can declare to the world that we've got a life-saving drug. We can start saving lives uh, right away. So that was the setup for the whole thing. Pierre Corey 
Corey says, Tess, we're one step ahead of you. We've got this guy, Dr. Andrew Hill, that's working with us from the WHO. So this team came together. Andrew Hill is texting out to the world. I am so excited about ivermectin. It looks like we really have something that could save lives, maybe 75 to 80 percent of lives. I think that's about enough setup to this interview that I did with Tess. Uh, and one of the most shocking discoveries and, and proof, I think, of how twisted our system really is right before our eyes. You're about to see it. Why would the WHO not be promoting something that seemed to be showing such success around the world? Um, this first clip, essentially, you're asking him, you know, what, uh, who's involved? What's happening here? Let's take a look at this. I, th I think... I'm in a very sensitive position here. I, what yeah, I'm trying to do... People are, are in sensitive positions. They're in hospitals and ICUs dying and they need this medicine. Well... This is what I don't get, you know. Because you, you're not a clinician, you're not at the cold face, you're not seeing people dying every day. And, and this medicine prevents deaths by 80%. So 80% of those people uh, who are dying today don't need to die because there's ivermectin. There are a lot, as I said, there are a lot of different opinions about this. As I said, some people... We are looking at the data. It doesn't matter what other people say. We are the ones who are tasked with the... And we have the experience to look at the data and reassure everybody that this cheap and effective treatment will save lives. It's clear. You don't have to say, well, so-and-so says this and so-and-so says that. It's absolutely crystal clear we can save lives today if we can get the government to buy ivermectin. Rest assured, I'm not going to let this last for a long time. I don't, well, I'm not saying we keep going for another year. The fact that you're saying you're not going to let it last for a long time makes you realize the impact of your work. So how long are you going to let people carry on dying unnecessarily? Up to you. What is, what is the timeline that you've allowed for this then? Well, what I hope is that this, this stalemate that we're in doesn't last very long. It lasts a matter of weeks. And I guarantee I will push for this to, to last for as short amount of time as possible. So how long, how long do you think the stalemate will go on for? How long do you think your, your well, okay, from my side, okay, from my side, every single new trial that comes through, we're going to be aggressively adding it on and I think end of Feb will be there. Six weeks. How That's many people die every day? <clears throat> well, there is a whole group of people who think that ivermectin is, is, is complete rubbish. I'm not talking about them. I'm not talking about them. I'm saying we know the evidence. How many people what die every day? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, 15,000 people a day. 15,000 yeah, people a day times six weeks. Yeah, sure. No, I get it. Did you feel like if I can't get this shifted right now, I mean, it is the, I mean, in a way, the weight of the world is on your shoulders. If this paper goes forward, millions of people are going to die because they're not going to get a drug that you clearly have looked at and you said is saving lives. Did you feel like if I can't convince them here, all is lost. So who helped to, who, whose conclusions are those on the review that you've done? It's who's, who's, list, who's not listed as an author who's actually contributed? Well, I mean, I don't really want to get into, I mean, it, it, I think it needs, to be, it needs to be clear. I would like to know 
who, who are these other voices that are in your paper that uh, are not acknowledged? Does Unitate oh, okay. have a say? Do they influence what you write? Unitate has a say in the conclusions of the paper, yeah. Okay. So um, so who is it in Unitate then who is sharing, the, the, who is giving you opinion on your evidence? Well, it's just the people there. I, I, I thought Unitate is just a charity. I, is, it, is it not a charity? Yeah. They actually have, so they have a say in, in your conclusions? Yeah. So in many ways, I feel like there you have it. You have the smoking gun. You're asking who is it, and he says Unitate has a part of this conclusion, of writing this conclusion. Can you give us a sense of who Unitate is? It's a non-governmental organization that really has, um, a, a, does a lot of um, collaboration with the World Health Organization. And Bill Gates is on the um, board so this stalemate that Andrew, who, Andrew Hill referred to has just been extended on January 11th, 2023. Two years later, the public health yeah. emergency was just re-upped. We're still using remdesivir. We're not using yeah. ivermectin. So, Dell, what is your what is your perspective here? Did you know why? Well, it, it, it just I want to set it up a little better. I you know I wasn't sure where we were coming into the video. So to be clear, uh, Andrew Hill, who was in that Zoom call, uh, was a very a big fan of ivermectin, and all these scientists worked together. But because he was with the WHO, the team decided, well, you write the paper, and they handed the paper, and so the paper was going to come out under his name. It all looked good until they saw a preprint of the paper, and it said everything that they believed, that all these studies showed about a 75% reduction in death and unhospitalization. It's an amazing drug. But then there was this added paragraph they'd never seen before where it said, essentially, uh, but these trials were, you know, were not uniform in the way that they were done. And there's, you know, that there really needs to be larger randomized control trials done before we could really say that this drug works. And so right there, this new paragraph was entered into the conclusion that destroyed the relevance of the paper and would keep it from moving forward as a product that could be used around the world. So that's what the Zoom call, she's like, why did you add that paragraph? He ends up admitting she asked, did Unitate have anything to do with it? Yes, this outside organization wrote my conclusion. So it didn't matter all the work that they had done. And if you see his demeanor, he's clearly being oppressed by something uh, that's right. larger than him. He's talking about there's a stalemate. And he's not saying a stalemate between him and the scientists he's worked with. You can tell he likes tests. And you can tell he still is saying, I'm going to do my best to get every new trial in to try and get this product um, approved. Um, so he's obviously working with an, against an outside interest. That outside interest, by the way, gave his university right before this paper was published, about a day before this new paragraph is entered in, $40 million is given to the University of Liverpool where he works. This is how science is being manipulated around the world. Unitate gives $40 million and buys their way into the conclusion and then makes it so that no one will see the ivermectin. Um, these are crimes against humanity. As I said, we would have saved probably 750,000 lives and counting in America and God knows how many millions of lives worldwide. And you watch when I've played this in public and, and you're to your point, when you watch him saying, 
look, I'm moving as fast as I can. It's only going to be another six weeks. I promise I'm going to get this done in six weeks. And she says, how many people are dying every day? He says 15,000 people per day. And how many people is that over six weeks? I know. He's like, I know. What you're watching is that slippery slope. When we ask, how does Nazi Germany happen? How does a doctor, how does someone make a decision that is going to cost literally 15,000? Can you imagine finding out one human being was allowed to just mow down and kill 15,000 people per day? That would go down in one of the greatest crimes against humanity. Yet you're watching it before your eyes is being made because of a decision from some nonprofit that is bought this paper and taken control of it. Bill Gates is behind this and a lot of other players, and it is why we are very, you know, fixed on this story because I believe um, these are crimes against humanity. I believe, just like the Nuremberg trials of Nazi, of the Nazi doctors, that we have to have trials of these doctors that kept this life-saving drug out of the hands of the people. And by the way, the doctors that were trying to use it were losing their licenses for, you know, doing their own research and saying, look, this drug looks great. I have a, I have a responsibility to my patient. Incredible uh, interview in the Senate with Dr. Paul Merrick, the leading ICU doctor, most published ICU doctor alive uh, today. And he lost his license because he was using products like ivermectin and vitamin C and having a 50 percent better outcome in his patients in the ICU than every other ICU doctor in that in that hospital and in that state. And still they took his license away for being a effective at what he was doing because he was using unapproved products all of this and they have a he has a big lawsuit um, against uh, i believe it's the hospital there there's a lot that needs to be brought to light these are really really and believe me i am well aware of how big the charges i am making against these hospitals and people like andrew hill um, these are crimes against humanity millions have died needlessly at the hands of bureaucrats i think that's right on you're seven hundred fifty thousand figure is really relative to people in hospitals relative to COVID. But since they use this to promote the fear propaganda, you know, it's potentially significantly way more lives because how many people wouldn't have had the fear which motivated them to take the jab if yeah. it would have been released? I want to jump into a little bit broader scope of vaccines and, and yeah. reference uh, your attorney for ICANN, Aaron Siri, who is quite a blessing to, to all of us in the United States. Don, I want you to bring up the article that Aaron had in the Epic Times. And I want to specifically scroll down to a couple of things and just read them. Uh, so first, it, with the hepatitis B products, he's, he said 140, here's the, the test was 147 kids, five days of safety monitoring after injection. There's no indication there was a control group, which that lends to what you said earlier, Dell. Yeah. And at the last line on the bottom, it, Aaron says, think about this business model. You have a vaccine. You can't be sued for harms. You have a guaranteed market because the kids are required to get it for school and your health agencies promote it for you and defend against any harm. I mean, this is this falls into the category that you, you can't make this stuff up. So yeah. then how long has this been going on? I want to show a, a document that um, that I found this last week from a Substack article I wrote. So, Don, this is this is the one, um, the next one in, on your on your list, the Dropbox article. 
So this is the federal registry. This was a document that was put out in support of the polio vaccine. And it specifically says, when you see these pages in the show notes, it specifically says that if if anybody has ev any evidence at all that shows the polio vaccine doesn't work, it's against the law to share it. This is right in the federal registry. So I'm bringing this up, Dell, because I want to get your perspective on the, the longer view. So the, the statement that I have is, is vaccine safety now become a misnomer because of everything we've just talked about, but also the Supreme Court in 2011, Congress in 1986 said, vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. So I just would like your perspective of that. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm currently actually working on a book that's going to lay out all of this exactly. But what we just what we just witnessed with and this is the best way, because we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. I'm fascinated by this subject. But what you just watched with the covid vaccine program, uh, anyone that's waking up. So if you're watching this show right now, covid vaccine obviously scared you. I say this to all the doctors that come onto my show that are brand new to this. They'll say things like the rest of the vaccine program is great, but this covid vaccine did something that's never been done before. They didn't test it properly. It was raced on the market. And I say to all of them, this is the longest safety trial that was ever done of any of the vaccines. You are wrong on this. As a doctor, you are wrong. You are still believing in orthodoxy. This COVID vaccine got a saline placebo group. Why? Because my nonprofit basically threatened lawsuit against the FDA if they tried to push this vaccine out without a proper control, which is a, a, a saline placebo group. So in the phase three trials, when we put that announcement to the FDA, two days later, they stopped all phase three trials. They replaced how they were going to do the trial. They were going to use a meningococcus vaccine as the control. Instead, they used a saline injection. That hasn't happened before. We knew that. That's why we demanded that. So the COVID vaccine did get a saline uh, placebo group. Very short-lived since they had the emergency use authorization. And just a few weeks after the second shot was given, they took the total of about 170 of the patients. So forget about the 40,000 that are in the Pfizer trials or the 35,000 that are in the Moderna trials. They were, these were not trials of 40,000 and 35,000. It came down to less than 200 that they analyzed out of those two gigantic groups and made all the science um, right there, the first ones that got sick. I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but only to say that it is a it is true. The COVID vaccine trials are horrific. The product never proved safety. We now know from those that were the heads of Pfizer that they never even tested to see if it could stop transmission, even though Tony Fauci and everyone got on the news and said it's 95 percent effective at stopping transmission. If you get it, you'll protect your neighbor. We now know that is nothing more than a complete and total fabricated lie. They never even tested to see if the vaccine could protect your neighbor. And now we know that it can't. In fact, we're seeing that the vaccine increases your risk of catching COVID and therefore spreading it to your neighbor's um, and so the thing's a, a disaster. But when we look at all the other childhood vaccines, they're no better. They have shorter trials, as you pointed out. And Aaron Siri wrote a great article about this. The hepatitis B vaccine given to a day one old baby had no more than there's two products. One had a four day safety trial. COVID, you could argue, had a nine month safety trial. 
four days, and then the other product got five days. There was no placebo group to control it. So when you look at this product, if your child dies, like let's say one of the, in the trials died at seven days into it, it didn't happen in the trial. We didn't see it. This is how they do this science. They can say to you, well, our trials didn't see that it caused death. Our trials didn't see that it caused multiple sclerosis, which is one of the big claims against the hepatitis B vaccine and the load of aluminum. Uh, but when we look at it, well, you're saying that, but you're trial was only five days long. What, what autoimmune disease has ever appeared within five days? This is the beginning of all the issues. Just to drill down on hepatitis B, one of our biggest concerns with that vaccine is the amount of aluminum that's in it. Aluminum has never been tested in human beings to see if it was safe, though it's used in most of our vaccines. The only trials they ever did of aluminum was on rats, and they fed rats aluminum And they determined from that rat study that a small infant, that the maximum dose that an infant could eat, because remember it was an oral study, would be about 25 micrograms of aluminum. Well, now just let's just be reasonable. This is where I'm not a doctor, right? I am just a journalist. I'm just reporting what we have learned through our investigations and lawsuits. So as an average person, wouldn't you expect that eating like aluminum, if it's a toxic metal, which it is, it's going to go into an open system and pass through your body and then obviously hopefully be removed from your body once you go to the bathroom. So you're not going to get all that aluminum in your bloodstream. So you have to imagine eating aluminum that if you injected the same amount of aluminum that you said was on the verge of being, you know, the maximum level of toxicity to eat, you have to assume that that would be toxic to inject. Wouldn't you? So you would think they're not going to inject the amount that they said is the maximum dose to be eaten at 25 micrograms. Well, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. The hepatitis B vaccine doesn't have 25 micrograms of aluminum. It has more. It doesn't have 50. It doesn't have 75. It doesn't have 100. It doesn't have 200. It has 250 micrograms of aluminum. Ten times the dose ever said that could be eaten by a rat as being injected into your day one old baby. And what do we look at? We know that in the United States of America, where we mandate that that vaccine be injected before you leave the hospital within 24 hours of birth, guess what? We have the highest day one, first day death rates of babies, infants in the entire industrialized world. In fact, we have more than 50% more babies die in America on the first day of life than every other industrialized nation combined. For a disease, by the way, hepatitis B, that your child has no risk of unless they plan on sharing heroin needles sometime in the first couple years of life or sleeping with prostitutes. And remember, every mother in America is tested whether she has hepatitis B before she gives birth. So the only person, if you ever wanted to argue it, that should be worrying about a vaccine is a mother who has hepatitis B that is having a baby. If you don't have hepatitis B, why in God's name are we giving this vaccine to your day one old baby, especially when we have the highest day one old uh, um, um, deaths in, in, in the world? So there it is. That's the beginning of a conversation that I could go through all 16 vaccines and show you there has never been safety. There are so many claims of injury 
all around the world. The numbers are astronomical. When we look at autism, which is what got me into the middle of this conversation, we have gone from one in 10,000 children with autism in the 1970s, 60s, 70s, to now one in 44 children has autism. You want to talk about a pandemic? That's a pandemic. And the boys have it more often than girls, about four to one. So boys and autism is now reaching somewhere near one in 20 boys is being diagnosed with autism. Uh, we are on the verge of not being able to mount a standing army if we continue this way. We may not even be able to mount a standing Starbucks if someone doesn't get on top of this. Yet you can't get anyone to do the proper science looking at any of these things. Yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely right on. I want to just share a couple of things that just came out. So uh, this is the most current. So uh, Don, can you do Naomi Wolf's Dropbox? So this this just came out where this is a result of Aaron Siri's work, Dell. Thanks to you. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a drop of you know fifty five thousand documents, I think, from Pfizer. Her uh, she got a team of yeah. uh, 3,000 volunteers to put this thing together. So this gives a dissection of all the the things that Pfizer wanted to keep locked up for 75 years for the first drop of documents. And then can you go to the next one, Don? So the next one is on RFKs. Uh, I don't see it up on my screen. There we go. Uh, so RFK Jr. put this out. Uh, just scroll down. I just want to read the last paragraph. So this was on G. Edward Griffin's program. Uh, well, a little bit too high. All right. So Operation Warp Speed under former President Trump was an uh, interagency partnership between the Department of Health and Human Services and the Military Department of Defense. Uh, this is, I mean, it, this is huge. I mean, and we saw this with the Brooke Jackson case, but I mean, Bobby mm-hmm. Kennedy is obviously exposing this, uh, doing a deep dive into it with with this exposure. What I want to do in the last bit that we have, Dell, is yeah. I I want to just talk about if the goal should be vaccine elimination. Because I mean, we've got all this exposure, not just about current, but I mean, historical. So why why are we even considering vaccine safety? I mean, it, it doesn't seem possible with with the with having a government involved with vaccine safety. I mean, they've shown they can't they can't do it. So I'm, I just want to get your perspective of that. So I have a somewhat, I guess, controversial perspective on this in terms of, you know, the movement that, you know, I'm said to be a part of. Whether you want to call us the vaccine risk awareness movement or anti-vaxxers or whatever, I don't care what you call me. Um, I'm just trying. I'm, I'm a consumer advocate and I am trying to save children's lives and make sure they're safe. And so I will say this. Um, I believe in the Constitution of the United States of America. I believe that we are endowed with rights given to us by God. And I do not believe the government is in control of my rights. In fact, my Constitution does not govern over me. It governs over my government and makes sure that they don't take my rights away. I think we've lost perspective of this. And so I would say this, that... You know, at the Informed Consent Action Network, our goal is not to eradicate vaccines from the planet. 
Uh, our goal is to make sure that there is always a choice for every medical decision that we make. And so I am anti-vaccine mandate. I want all mandates for vaccine stripped. I don't think you should ever be coerced into getting a vaccine in order for your child to go to school. Uh, the coercion is in direct violation of the Nuremberg Code. And the first rule of the Nuremberg Code is the voluntary consent of the patient is absolutely critical to modern health care. And that means the patient must be completely informed of all the benefits and all the potential negative side effects of any medical decision they make. And then and only then it is still their decision whether they want to move forward with that drug, with that vaccine, with that uh, experiment, with that surgery. It always must be our choice. I don't think that eradicating vaccines from the planet, there's people that believe in it, right? So I'm doing the same thing they're already doing to me. I don't believe and this is, let me be perfectly clear. I have never given one of these vaccines to my children. I, you know, and I, why? Not because I'm anti-vaccine, because I have a really simple rule. I don't give anything to my kids or myself that's never been through a proper safety trial that's made by pharma. I just don't do that. So do a proper safety trial someday, and then let's talk about what I think about that product. And let me see who did that safety trial, and let me see if there's some independent analysis going on that agrees with that. Until that's happened, I think it's insane to take any of these products. But you have a choice. If you want to give your children untested products that never establish safety, it's a free country. Go ahead and do it. I took my child's, you know, my daughter's skiing at three years old. People would say that's dangerous. She could run into a tree. It's true. That's true. But she's my child and I grew up skiing. Therefore, I live a different life than you do. And I have the right to raise my kids the way I want to raise them. So I'm never going to try and take away your right to inject your children with viruses, bacteria, heavy medicine and God knows what else. I mean, unfortunately, you're free to do that. But what I will make sure is no one can ever force that product on you in any way. And what I really think will, you know, right this ship more than anything is we've got to remove the 1986 vaccine injury compensation program. Yes. I believe that we simply put liability back on the manufacturers. Remember, they're liable for drugs and they make plenty of money off of drugs, even when they sue, get sued. And the drug like Biox proves that it was killing people and they have to pay out three billion dollars. That's still a financial success. And remember, as the pharmaceutical industry keeps telling us, it's it's one in a million injury. Great. If that's true, pharma that's making bill, tens of billions of dollars can certainly afford that one in a million lawsuit. I know that's a lie. You know that's a lie. But let's put liability back on the manufacturers so that they can be sued if they don't do proper safety trials. And then let's see how many vaccines are still on the market. I assure you there would be almost none. Because they won't take on that liability. Remember, even with the emergency use authorization, there was a moment when Belgium, the country of Belgium, did not want to give liability protection to AstraZeneca for the vaccine. And they said publicly that we will not give you our vaccine because we cannot be held legally responsible for a side effect that appears three or four years down the road since our trials didn't last long enough to have detected that. So they were concerned about the long-term safety, didn't want to be liable for it, and said, then you don't get the drug, or in this case, the COVID vaccine. 
Well, that would be the case with all of these. They have never done proper safety trials, and so they will not allow themselves to be responsible. Let's put liability back on the manufacturers. Let the natural market forces that affect and make all products evolve and better in the United States of America and around the world. Let's put them back into that system and let the chips fall where they may. Outstanding. Before I close, I just have one final question, and then I'm going to give you the last word after I close, which is why aren't people waking up? I mean, you've got sudden adult adult death syndrome. I mean, almost everybody knows somebody who has died. Uh, so why aren't people waking up? You know, I'd like to focus on all those that are. I think that we can stand in a negative space and look at those that are still asleep. But the truth is, is more people have woken up throughout this entire experience than any speech I've ever given or Robert Kennedy Jr. We could have been shouting from the mountaintops for the next 20 years and not seeing the amount of people that are now awake to the problems with our health and regulatory agencies, this government and these products known as vaccines. Remember, they needed about a 95 percent uptake of the vaccine, supposedly, in order to stop it. It would have never worked because now we know the vaccine could never stop transmission. So it's a waste of everyone's time, money and lives. Uh, but even so, only 70 percent got it, meaning 30 percent denied all of the propaganda that came our way getting the vaccine. And then I look at that other 70 percent and I think how many of them only got this experimental product because they were threatened with losing their jobs and didn't know how to feed their families under duress. They got it. And now we know that less than 10 percent are even considering getting the booster shot. So amongst those that wanted and believed in the vaccine, they have now lost their confidence by 90 percent. That means the majority of this country actually are now waking up to the reality. I want to focus there. And for those that can't seem to wake up, they probably never will. There's nothing we can do about that. That's always a part of society. You always have the zealots that hold on to their orthodoxy. And remember, when we talk about this issue, when it comes to medicine, what I will say is this is the most powerful God in most people's lives. I don't care if your religion said thou shalt have no other gods before me. I assure you, you believe in your oncologist more than you believe in God. We have given up on God. We have given up on the idea of miraculous healing. We have given up on the idea that God will protect our bodies and would never overthink a virus that could kill us and that we would need to wear masks in Eden the rest of our experience. That's insane thinking from any Christian or Muslim or, you know, Judeo, I mean, all of it. I mean, every, every prophet throughout time has said God has got you and is protecting you. Only medicine is selling us something different. And so that's where we're at. What we have got to decide is how long we're going to listen to. And then why do I say all that? Because ultimately, this orthodoxy is so strong in people now. They have so much fear of their lives uh, because they've lost a sense of something greater than themselves. And they believe so much in their doctors that when you try to tell them that this foundational principle of modern medicine, which is vaccines, is actually harmful to children and adults. It's the same as trying to tell a Christian that Jesus never walked this earth. I'm, and when I approach someone, when I'm trying to have this conversation, I recognize that that's the level of ortho, orthodoxy that we're dealing with. And so they're 
is a way that we have got to sort of bring those people around. But let's not get obsessed with the, the religious zealots of the pharmaceutical industry and those that believe in it. Let's focus on those that are waking up and those that are even just starting to ask questions because what they've seen has rocked their concept of reason and common sense. Um, we are seeing a turning point. As someone that has been in this movement long before COVID vaccine came around, I'm telling you, this conversation is shifting. Everyone should be watching the high wire. We're going to talk more and more about it. And hopefully in the next couple of months, I'll have a book out that will talk about the entire vaccine program from the perspective of what we've just learned through the COVID vaccine. So let me just tell you this. It ain't just the COVID vaccine. Wow. Del, I always enjoy how you wrap things up. I want to just close with a couple of comments. First, I just want to let everybody know we did not get to predictive programming because Dell did such a great job laying out all the elements of the vaccine situation. But, you know, in closing, I just want to play off of what Dell said. First, by referencing, I, I watched Dell at Red Pill in Utah last November, and he closed with a similar perspective he just shared. And that is, he said he his perspective of the fight is he gets up every day and he does his part, but he leaves it to God to fix this. And I just thought that was that was really well said. And you know what happens is every time men decide to play God, it does not work out. And then of course we're seeing that now on not just on on the COVID situation, but worldwide as we see men trying to fix what is a God problem. Uh, and if we're serious, the first step in God's work is repentance. We've been programmed to rely on men to fix things. And if we're going to fix this, we have to rely on repentance. And that's not just the people who, who have sinned in this situation. That is all of us who have been lazy and not doing our part in the past. And so I want to encourage everybody to rely on the one who is the real prince, not the prince of this world, and that's Jesus Christ. He died, was buried, and rose again on the third day so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, last word goes to you, Del. Yeah, you know, Scott, I, I want to have a message that I want to share with you directly because as we started this, I know that you know, some days for you are more difficult than others. And when we think about grace, you know, I've been reflecting a lot on my wife and I actually, I don't talk about this a lot. We, we lost a child in utero, the, in utero the day before he was due to be born. Uh, that experience of that, carrying that child for nine months, we knew we had issues. In this case, uh, unlike Down syndrome, which is what Grace was with the third, um, the, the third chromosome on the 21st chromosome, we were, our, our child had Edwards syndrome, which was the 18th chromosome had picked up a third. And so we knew we were either going to have a very complicated birth and probably a short-lived life, or we wouldn't make it. But all of those things, you know, um, that we went through as, as my wife and I went through and our son and our family, um, I will tell you that I would not be here today had I not had that experience. 
Um, I could go on and, and for, for probably days talking about how much I learned through that experience. A lot of it, how I learned to accept what I cannot change and to make a difference where I, I absolutely can. It taught me empathy for those that I do not understand that are going through situations that maybe are not my own situation. But, you know, what I wanted to say to you, Scott, is... You know, recently, and I think our biggest problem and where they control us is really fear. And ultimately, what do we fear is death. We fear death. And so they manipulate us through that fear of death. That's how they push these vaccines. It's how they try to make us afraid of UFOs or some future uh, virus or global. The earth is going to get so hot no one can live on it. These are all fear tactics, as the Simpsons very well laid out. But I realized, you know, when talking recently with my wife and with some friends about our son that we lost, how impactful that life was for us was as impactful as any human I've ever met on this planet. And I thought about the nine months that we carried that beautiful child and the effect that he had on our lives in terms of my own life, how old I am now, or maybe my father who's now 85 years old, what difference is there really when we look at the scope of the universe and when we look at the scope of life as it exists, we are all just simply a quick spark um, in this experience. And so to judge the length of life as the length of this tiny little spark, 88 years, 90 years, 120 is really not that much different than nine months or as old as Grace was, was she around 20 years old? She was um, 19. 19. And so I think from our limited human perspective, we try to grasp onto, you know, we have a different timeline that we see. But as you said, when when you have a concept of God in your life and what Jesus showed us that this is everything is so much bigger than this life is on earth. What I want to say to people is recognize that all you are is a flash. So there's no point in fear. People ask me, how are you so courageous in doing what you're doing? The only thing that I have is the day I'm living today. And you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to go to bed and think, you know what? There's something more I could have done to make the world a better place for my children and their children and their children's children. I could make a difference today. And I didn't. I had an opportunity and I didn't take it. That is walking dead. I'm not alive if I'm living like that. So in my little flash of spark in this moment in life, I'm not going to dread my own death of those around me. I'm going to celebrate every single day that I have and do everything I can to make this world a better place. If we all took on that perspective, there is no government institution in this world that would be able to shut us down or take anything away from us. So I want to bless those of us, some shorter than others, the graces, and in our case, my son Orion, for that very powerful moment, that flash that makes a difference for everyone that those lives touch. Let us be so powerful in those that we touch as we move forward in our lives. Thank you, Del. Thank you. Please stand by for further details. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program.